0: Before we get into today's episode, I would like to ask you for a rare instance of sociopolitical action. I don't know if you've been following the news on this. It's been a a medium story, uh, but the Biden administration kind of balked on their refugee admittance uh, policy, and they kept a very low cap of 15,000 in this fiscal year, which is the year that started in October and goes until next October. And this is almost no different from the Trump era cap. Uh, normally, like a, an average sort of year is in the, you know, 90,000 type range. And this is 15. This is one of the main things uh, I and many others were hoping to see different from President Biden. And so I think we should advocate for that. World Relief, which is one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in America, has a petition, I have already signed it, I would love for you to go sign it. I will put a link to that in the show notes right under the description of the episode. So if you could take a minute and go sign that it it will take less than one minute. Uh, This is an instance where the pressure has, has already seemed to be working advocacy groups like world relief already succeeded in getting the administration to rescind that initial 15,000 cap number within only hours after the announcement and they're going to come back with a higher number and it might be higher or medium or not that much above and this pressure here if 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 you care like i do and you know not everybody has the same politics but For me, refugee admittance is a massive issue. Uh, They are the most highly vetted immigrants to the country, and they are the most in need. And so I would like to see that cap as high as is reasonably possible, and so I will lend my voice to raising it. So please do the same if you feel the same way. And now into talking about today's episode, I spoke with Lisa Oakley. I've mentioned her before because she is the only person uh, along with her co-author in the world uh, in the western world up to this date that has done a quantitative study on spiritual abuse. So we talk about her study it was a model for my own survey which I we recorded this a while ago but I'm sure I talked about it quite a bit uh, my own study uh, but we also talk about the stuff that Dr. Oakley is up to these days which is really interesting and kind of in one sense, moves beyond the spiritual abuse literature uh, to think about what comes next. What's the opposite of that? What is a community that is low in abuse? What does that look like? How do you make those communities? So we get into kind of everything in between those two topics, and it's a fascinating conversation with someone whose work is very important to me. And so I hope you guys will enjoy this episode. Thanks. Dr. Lisa Oakley, this is a conversation that I have been looking forward to for a long time because I have been now working toward my own dissertation project and the background research for it for, I don't know, a year or so now, maybe maybe eight months. And you have done the only quantitative, so numerical study on spiritual abuse in the Western world. There is one other study, which you probably are aware of, in Iran of some college students. Pretty pretty different set of questions and stuff that they were looking for and a very different cultural context. So you're the only game in town in terms of prevalence of this kind of stuff in the Western church. And listeners will remember, by the time this comes out, probably three or four months back, I interviewed Dr. Paula Swindle and we did an, a whole primer on what is religious and spiritual abuse. And so we won't don't have to do a ton of that today because we she did a great job kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of it. But I'm so excited to talk to you not least because of this angle of prevalence and that is something that I'm aiming to build on and and add another piece of uh, another another data point to that eventually with my own work. We'll get into that as we talk. So that was kind of a long introduction there, but that is why I'm excited. So I don't know where exactly we should start other than, D- <laughs> is there anything else that you want to say about your background before we get into your history of researching spiritual abuse?
1: I guess to say that I've done three pieces of work, and I probably want to talk about all of them, and they're not all quantity pieces of work. Um And I think that um, the the most important thing for me to say at the beginning of anything is I'm really grateful to people who have shared their stories to enable us to understand more what spiritual abuse is. And that's a very costly thing to do. And it's something that I'm very, very grateful for, that people have spent time over the years speaking to me, filling out surveys, uh, taking part in interviews and helping us to understand more about what this is. And I'm really grateful for that.
0: Uh, <laughs> and so am I, because by the time this airs, I will already have put out my call for my own survey, uh, asking people to take basically 15 minutes out of their day and hoping to get many hundreds of people to do that to help give us some some uh, prevalence data for the United States. So, yes, I echo that. And of course, when when Dr. Swindle and I talked, we were drawing heavily on the quantitative, the qualitative research. Uh, her dissertation and the David Ward piece in 2011, which I know that both you, she and I have been citing Mm. as one of these kind of great thematic distillations of what's going on with spiritual abuse. So I guess um, the first question for you is, when did you start researching this topic and why? What is it about spiritual abuse that piqued your interest?
1: So I guess the um, the answer to that is a, a few different answers to that. I mean, when I first started researching it, it's an interesting question for me because I started my doctorate exploring experiences of spiritual abuse in the Christian faith in the UK in 2003. That was a qualitative piece. I should say I am by heart a qualitative researcher. Um, oh, cool. And that came out of um, and this is, you know, if people have read anything that I've written, it, it, it came out of an experience that I had where I came out of a church and was trying to make sense of the experience that I'd had. And as an academic, I started to read books post, prior to 2003, I should say. Uh, most of the books I read uh, Probably all the books I read, to be honest, were books that had been written in the US um, and talked about this thing called spiritual abuse that I'd never really heard of until that point. But what I did know when I read them was that what they talked about and the characteristics of the experience they talked about resonated with me. And so that's where I began to, to read. I then started to look more broadly in Christian magazines and found some things written in the UK. But I think it's It's true to say there there was very little written and there's still relatively little written in this area. And so that's kind of where I started from. I I was a, a psychology lecturer at the time. I needed to do a PhD. I wasn't anticipating doing a PhD in this area but um, became increasingly interested but recognised that there was a void of understanding and evidence and so that's where the research started really and has continued since. I think as we go through this I'm sure we'll chat a bit more but um, I think it's, it's developed and it's extended as it should but I think there's a lot more work needed and I'm always excited to hear about other work that's being done because I think we need it. And we should always be encouraging people to, to research areas because we learn more by each, each piece of research that's done. So I think, you know, that's exciting for me to hear that you're going to do the survey and that there'll be new knowledge and new understanding gained from that.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I, I, we haven't actually talked about this and I think it's, it probably won't be too boring for listeners. So what I'm planning on doing... The first step of the dissertation is this survey, which by the time this comes out will have already gone out, and and I'll be now looking at my future self. (laughs) Eight weeks from now, we'll be looking at some of the data, I think, Uh, maybe not quite yet, Um, and that's a really long survey. It's uh, 68 prompts Mm -hmm. and 14 demographic questions, something like that, and from that, we're going to get a lot of prevalence data because those... 68 prompts are all mostly distinct from each other. There's some thematic overlap, of course. And some of those are taken directly from your work, some from Paula's work, some from David Ward's work, and any other stuff I could find, like Dr. Wynell's religious uh, trauma syndrome stuff. Maybe it's Winell. I don't know how to pronounce her name. And then we're going to take that, the plan is, and to distill that using factor analysis, which is just a fancy way of seeing what correlates to each other. To get a shorter version that will actually be a scale uh, that someone could administer in about five to six minutes uh, with a client, for instance, that will give them a score that can be normed against the average person, basically like their their broad. Currently, the idea is their kind of broad exposure to potentially spiritually abusive situations, something like that, and there's. Don't quote me, everybody, on that second part of the research. We're going to see what we get, and we'll do some work with it. But the first step is this big survey. And hopefully this will be basically the next the next good piece of, of quantitative data around how prevalent is this stuff. And I'm, like, so jazzed. I woke up the other morning too early when I should have gone back to sleep just excited about, like, getting into Qualtrics which is the survey platform and like changing the wording. I mean, it's like nerdy, nerdy shit, Dr. Oakley. It's it's I'm getting a little concerned for myself. But um so I wondered if you could actually tell us about this experience that you had that resonated, you know, get a little I know it's not normally comfortable for academics to do but if you could get a little vulnerable and autobiographical i think that would help us
1: okay i may not want to do too much of that i'm going to be honest. why don't you
0: you as much as you care to share is fine uh, i think
1: i guess my experience involved coercion and control and manipulation and a whole range of things which are well yeah are documented in stuff that i've written and i think i came out of that i had been i should probably give some background to it which is I've been to church all my life I was Mm. brought up as a Christian and I'd only experienced you know I'm not saying everything was great because because no organization including church is ever great all the time but I think generally it was a very wholesome and good place to be and this wasn't like that Um, and so that was where it came from really is this experience that was quite different and trying to understand that. And, you know, and when I reflect back on some of the experiences I've had, I think if I had had more understanding or if there'd been more awareness or people were talking about these issues, maybe there's more that could have been done. Maybe I would have understood things sooner or maybe I would have been able to help in a way in the situations that I found myself in. And I think one of my sort of um, rationales and motivations for doing this work is about well there's twofold really one is to say people have these experiences and when they have them they damage them and they have a right for those experiences to be understood and responded to well i think i also want us to understand better so that we can prevent things from this like this from happening and i think there's a whole set of things that goes alongside that and i'm not sure how much time we have got to go into them but i think we got time I think there's stuff, I mean, we'll talk probably more about this later, but I think there's really a lot of thinking to be done about leadership and what leadership looks like, what we expect of our leaders, what pressure we put on our leaders and what behaviours that might lead to. That's not to excuse behaviour when it occurs, but it's about understanding the context. I think we also need to understand much better about healthy cultures. And that's really where a lot of my work is right now, is looking at how do we create healthy cultures? healthy Christian cultures particularly in this instance where these things are less likely to occur and when they do they are more likely to be identified and responded to and so for me that's the motivation behind it I still go to church still I'm still a Christian you know I can see lots of the positive benefits I belong to my own community and and I love it but I want it to be a safe place. I want these places to be safe places, which is what they were always intended to be. And that is for me, uh, what this is about. How do we create cultures in which people flourish and grow? And how do we stop some of the stuff that stops that from happening?
0: Totally. There's something interesting that you find when you dive into the admittedly scant uh, academic research on this topic. And Basically, like as I was working on a paper, a big paper that was sort of a, a part of early part of my dissertation, one of the things that I had to do is I had to motivate for you know for purposes of the argument why it matters that people are being spiritually abused, not not just that they 're being abused, of course it 's obvious that abuse is wrong, but who cares about spiritual abuse and the easiest way to argue for that once you actually start thinking about it and looking at the the broader research is that it's like completely – it's like established beyond reasonable doubt at this point that religion and church tend to be really good for people. And this is something that does not come up a lot in the kind of deconstruction post-evangelical spaces because a lot of people are dealing with trauma. A lot of people are dealing with uh, spiritually abusive environments that they came out of as well. And that's not the time when you uh, naturally catalog all the great things about church. I mean, you can understand that that's not what people are doing in sort of in the in the natural flow of things. But having to make that argument and then, oh, well, what does the research say? Oh, my gosh, it's like quite clear it's just interesting, and everybody that is currently doing this this research—you, Dr. Swindle, who is focusing a bit more on clinical application, as well as David Ward in Australia, who's a clinician—and then your work with Dr. Kinman is more focused on institutional changes, and you know that kind of. At least your 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 focus of it seems to be more on that. You, you find all these people who like love the church basically, or, or at least love these people who are wrestling with faith. And I don't know, I guess I didn't necessarily expect to find that when I dug into the research.
1: I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I'm really passionate about and part of the healthy uh, culture work that we're engaged in at the moment is that part of the issue I think is that we're not very good at either giving and telling positive stories about Christian faith communities or indeed any faith community and actually the discourses that exist in general society around faith and religion but I mean I I can only talk really for the UK context but predominantly are negative and actually there's not a lot of positive stories and yet there are lots of positive impacts of being parts of religious communities and that's as you say documented in research from social support to uh, a sense of belonging to all kinds of other um, aspects that have a positive impact on psychological wellbeing and so it for me one of the i think jobs for the future is and um, for the present is to capture examples of good practice so what does good look like And how do we do more of that? And that, for me, is where the healthy cultures work comes in, is what does good look like then, as well as looking at what goes wrong and taking that very seriously. Um, What does good look like? What's the opposite to this? What does a culture look like in which these things are much less likely to occur? And for me, those two things need to to go in tandem together. And I think it is hugely important to capture uh, the positive aspects while recognising the negative ones that
0: that's basically an analog to reconstructing as a part of your deconstruction. I mean, right there, but in an institutional context. Well, can we talk a little bit about mm. I feel like people's ears are going to be perking up now if, if you've got if you have any insight into what these healthy church cultures or Christian group group cultures look like? What are you finding?
1: think that um, one of the things that's come out very clearly, I mean, we've, we've, we've looked at some kind of characteristics of healthy cultures and some of the um, training and sessions I've been delivering recently have looked both at spiritual abuse and healthy cultures and uh, one of the things that comes out very strongly is a healthy culture is one in which people are respected and valued and nurtured and you know if you're respected you know if you're valued and I think what's really important about that and I might be kind of jumping the gun here a little bit but one of the things that came out of our 2017 survey was one of the questions you'd asked me to think about was what was a surprise Mm. and I think all the way along, right from the beginning of the work that I've done, I've documented that leaders experience spiritual abuse as well as uh, members of church congregations, and I think that's that's really was quite hidden and still is to a large extent. And obviously, if you're in a position of institutional power then you may be more able to coerce and control people than if you're not but I think one of the things I've written quite a bit about is personal power and personal power relationships and so you might actually be in a lower position in the in church authority, but actually have quite a strong, powerful role. So you might be that couple who's been in that church for a long time and everybody takes account of what you say. And actually, you have a huge amount of personal power and sometimes more than the person who's actually there as a leader or people that are there as leaders. And so actually, one oh, of- I
0: think of the church that I grew up in, which cycled through three head pastors in the 18 years, you know, that I was there before college I could name you 10 families each some of which were had elders in them but some of which didn't that had as much power as those guys had
1: and i think right? and i think part of the healthy culture stuff is where we respect and value and nurture each other that works whether it's top down bottom up or side to side so that mm. means that we we respect value and nurture our leaders and they respect value and nurture us and therefore then alongside that are things like Being able to ask questions and to disagree, how you do that really matters, but we should be able to do that in a healthy culture. Actually, psychologically, we know some of the worst decisions are made where nobody is allowed to disagree or to ask questions. And yet, sometimes within a church context, we can see that as disunity or disloyalty. And I think actually being able to kick around and think about, is this the right solution? And asking questions is really, really effective. I think the other thing is, you know, guiding people through biblical teaching, but not, but allowing people that autonomy to think through what they think about those scriptures, all those passages for themselves and the decisions that they want to make around those. I think we have also looked at, particularly looked at things around accountability and not having, there might be situations where you need enforced accountability. So we might have safeguarding contracts where perhaps somebody has committed an offence and wants to come back into a church situation. But there are lots of situations where people might find themselves being made to be accountable, being made to share more information than they want to. And, and one of those things about healthy accountability and choices that people are allowed to make around that. So I think some of the characteristics are that kind of valuing, respecting and nurturing for me sits under it all, as does safeguarding and safe cultures and being a safe place. But in that kind of culture, and there's lots of other hallmarks as well that, you know, I can uh, talk about but I think in that kind of culture then you can see a situation in which for example in a church meeting which is often what people relate to me when they tell me their stories um if a a leader is being treated particularly badly, actually that's not okay because that's not the culture we are and any member of the congregation can challenge that. And so that's where for me, the process, and it's something that I say a lot in training, the process is much more important often than the product. You will remember the process of a decision or the process that you go through much more. And often a decision that you make, you will remake as a church in three or four years but you will not be able to undo the way that you had treated people through the process. And so for me, that, that's a real key is how we treat one another and it matters. And so, so some of that actually, once we start to behave in, in more healthy ways, we start to respect each other, even when we differ in our opinions to one another. And probably most when we differ in our opinions to one another, then we start to create a situation in which it is much more safe. And I think also if you take that a step further, if you're in a culture which allows you to raise questions or to disagree, you're actually much more likely to be in a a culture which allows disclosure, because there is a situation there where you're allowed to say when something isn't right. And so I think for me... Um, you can probably tell I'm utterly passionate about this stuff, because for me, I think it's not just about as important as it is to me to address spiritual abuse. It's also about addressing all forms of abuse and all forms of harm. And actually, a healthy culture addresses some of all of those forms of abuse and harm, because it's a culture in which it's OK to say when something is not OK.
0: So, Lisa, you have just given me, I don't know, 10 follow-up questions here. So <laughs> I will I will try and organize them in some meaningful way on the fly. But the one that I'm thinking of right now, as we just finished that bit, is starting with this idea of people being respected, valued, and nurtured, and, and crucially, that you as a member of the group know if you are respected, valued, and nurtured. And so what I'm, what I'm wondering is, is one practical consequence of that something like leadership in churches and maybe even, as you were saying, some of these families with personal power or sort of cultural power within mm-hmm. the church or group, they ought to be asking straight up of the other people in the group, do you feel respected, valued, and nurtured? Because if it's true that people know if they do— then basically leaders should trust what they hear.
1: I think so. Uh, one if one sort it. of caveat I would say to that is it depends on the culture that you have, because if you are in a very controlled culture, um, you know that there's a right or a wrong answer to every question that you get am- asked oh, and so yes. if you're asked do you feel respected valued and nurtured mm. the right answer to that question is yes of course i do whether you actually do or not is a different uh, question and answer i think so i think it is about creating mm. these cultures in which people actually do know that it is okay to say if things are not okay and i think even within right. my my own church culture there have been situations where i felt that I've needed to say, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that decision. Now, that's actually, I find that still incredibly difficult to do. And yet I am in a, what I would say is a very safe place. And with, you know, a great senior leader and a great leadership team. But I still find because of my prior experience, it very difficult to say, I feel really uncomfortable but I also feel like I've done all this work and I jolly well should say if I don't feel uncomfortable otherwise what am I asking other people to do but it is it is about creating a culture in which people know it is okay I know it is okay beyond a shadow of a doubt to go to my senior leader or leadership team and say can I can I just have a chat with you about this it may be it doesn't change the decision that's made. And I think that's a really important thing to note. But I know I will be listened to and I know that I will be probably more valued, but definitely no less valued for taking that point of view. And that is it. That's a good culture to be a part of. So I think... In terms of it being respected, valued and nurtured, that's important. But I think one of the other characteristics we highlighted, particularly after the 2017 survey, was about nurturing and nurtured leadership. So leadership which nurtures those. And that's across the board. It's not just your main leadership team. It might be your children's ministry, your youth ministry, whatever it is that you are nurturing uh, the, the young people or the children or whatever area you're leading, but you'll be being nurtured yourself, and um, and you know that you're respected, and and that you're valued in that role, and I think. I was really interested, Dan, in your question that you uh, sort of sent to me saying, what was a surprise to you? And that's the first time I've ever been asked that. And it's such a great question because actually it was really funny. I sort of had a little laugh to myself when I read it because I thought the fir- my first statement when I looked at the data for the first time was, gosh, that is a really strong message. I knew it was there, but I had no idea how strong it was. And it was actually the number of people who... Identified as church leaders but said that they had experienced spiritual abuse and Mm. and although the way that we set up the survey um, was that there were closed questions and open questions so we did have quantitative data but we did also have qualitative data that's right Um, but in the open text comments we never actually asked anybody and this is partly to do with ethics at that point about their own personal experiences but in the open text comments they often did talk about their personal experience if they wanted to tell you
0: they could they could
1: and they and many leaders actually talked about their experiences and um it really led me to the point of thinking if we're actually going to tackle this issue properly we need to do it across the board we need to we need to be looking and that's what led to looking at the culture stuff the healthy cultures i mean it doesn't matter what we call it in a sense it might change its term but that if we really want to to tackle this we need to look at what we're doing as a whole and and fundamentally how we're treating each other and that's that's the basis of it i think for me i think some of the other things that we've looked at in this area is being and we're talking about churches in this instance, but being a church that values whole life service. So I think one of the things um, that has come out over the years is that people feel valued if they're in church ministry, but they don't. Their outside life, which might be equally important, is not seen as 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 important. And one of the kind of litmus tests for that is if you think about your services. Um, what do you pray for? Who do you pray for? What do you talk about? And actually, you know, I've had friends that have been social workers and teachers, my own daughter's a teacher. And, you know, they said, I can't remember a time that's ever been talked about. And yet, how important is that?
0: Well, the incentives are all wrong, right? The incentives for a church culture, whether it be liberal or conservative, are to basically... I don't know, uh, valorize ministry and, and pastoring work. It is literally the group where the it is the only place in the pastor's life where they are like at the top of the heap and churches are chronically understaffed, undervolunteered. And so they have these pressing needs. And so it is very much in their interest to mention that stuff and, and ask for it and call it out and, and to like reward that kind of behavior. Do you have any idea on how... I mean, incentives are powerful. They are more powerful than policy a lot of times, right? So what do you have ideas on how to counteract those very natural incentives?
1: I mean, I think we have to be realistic. I think it does take people to run things, you know, so um, I myself, I've, I did youth work for a long time um, at our church and I jumped in a couple of Sundays ago because I needed an extra pair of hands. And I think that's what you do as part of a family, isn't it? So I don't think there's anything wrong in that. But I do think that uh, where we start to see whole life as a service, that we then start to actually value and respect the work that people do outside of the church, which actually has a hugely positive impact on society. Oh, yeah. But I also think it's okay, you know, for, I'm going to, maybe this is a bit controversial, but, you know, I'm going to say if, you, if you've got lots of ministries and they can't all be staffed because people are busy outside doing work, which is also incredibly important ministry, then perhaps do they all need to run? Um, yeah have
0: fewer ministries right um
1: and I think there's some, you know there's some really for me there's some really exciting questions we can start to ask about who we want to be, what our priorities are, what's the DNA of my particular church? What's, you know, what's the thing that it can do um, and is is set up to do and can do well? And the church down the road has got some different gifts and some different opportunities and it can do well and the church across the town can do. And when we start to think about that and to operate in that way, we have less pressure on people. We have people yeah. using their gifts and, um, and feeling released to do that, but not pressured. And so for me, that kind of, we've got an organisation here called the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And if people are interested in this kind of thing, I'd really say, you know, Google them because they do a huge amount about whole life discipleship and whole life service and really, really kind of, much better than I could ever do. They do that. I think for the other thing that I would say is we talked earlier about capturing examples of what does good look like. Um, and one of the things that's been helpful as we've moved forward with this work has been getting people to explore these, some of these characteristics that we've talked about. So, you know, one thing that you can do with your church, with your small group, whatever it is, is say, well, which of these things are we doing really well already? Let's celebrate what we actually are doing well, because I think that's one of the things as well we often As you say, there is a focus on what's gone wrong. So if we're doing something well, let's recognize it, celebrate it, and replicate it, and maybe help other places that are struggling with that aspect to know how to, you know, to have a model of what that looks like.
0: I'm actually, I'm thinking of an example, actually, to just to, before we move past it, to to talk about the other uh, work that people do outside the church, I used to lead worship as a part-time job back when I was finishing my undergrad and this church, it's called union church in Seattle, very cool, healthy congregation. In my opinion, they had a Sunday and maybe it might've been a a series of Sundays. I don't remember if it was all one week or if it was split up, but they brought people in the congregation up on stage by basically sector Mm. of, of their work. And they uh, had people explain what they do. It's a fairly small church, maybe like um, seventy five, hundred people uh, per Sunday morning, per, per service. And they had people say what they did. And listeners of this show uh, who go all the way back, Adrian Wired, who is one of the first episodes, uh, he did the evolution and taking science seriously episodes. That's how I met him because he talked about what he was working on. And I was like, whoa, what is this guy doing? And, you know, we started a friendship, but it also, now that I'm using the lens of our conversation, it was a way to validate that work. There's actually a, quite a famous portrait photographer that goes to that church. And I didn't know that at the time. And he is super influential in the kind of art portraiture world. And that's important work, right? He's not a mm-hmm. pastor. And uh, it was very cool. And And it's just, it's it's cool to have a... An actual memory from a healthy church in my in my own experience that relates to what you're talking about,
1: and I think that kind of thing is is exactly the sort of stuff that the London Institute kind of uh, have been saying. So so they've um, got ideas around you know having different Sundays where you might pray for people who are in the health working in any yeah, area a, of house, especially or these
0: in, days, yeah. absolutely,
1: or, or in teaching or whatever it is. I think right. one of the other um, things they have the ideas they had, which is a really simple one, is is it's called TTT this time tomorrow. And it's just literally two minutes on a Sunday asking somebody in your congregation, what are you going to be doing this time tomorrow? And it starts to open Hmm. up what who are we as you know it's really interesting to me that um we have conversations with people over years and when people say what do they do for a job quite often you're not really quite sure um and so or at least not sure you might know the title but you might not know exactly what the job is and so I think that's only a small part of it and it's also important to say it's not just about employment you might actually be spending your time caring for a relative. You might right, be spending your time right. looking after children. You might, be, you might have a whole host of what you do with your day. But I think it's about starting to value what happens outside. And I think what we, what we start to see then is that we're so also starting to value where people are respecting, valuing and nurturing others outside of the context that we're in. Ah, that nice. starts to become a hallmark of you know healthy ministry so how do we treat people in in our workplace that matters as well as how we treat them in the church how do we treat the people that we in our day-to-day lives matters as well so some of these hallmarks are for healthy Christian cultures but they're also for healthy cultures how we treat one another how we work through um life together and it's interesting isn't it because you know when we read scripture it talks about this is how people will know that you you may that you love each other and actually for me that's that's what this hallmark is it's a sign that we love each other that we care for each other and that we might all be different but we respect and value each other greatly
0: it seems like there is a link between a, a culture where we are free to ask questions and disagree with each other and curiosity if you're in a church culture for instance where there is no curiosity about what other people do or think or what their experiences have have been and the only thing that is lifted up is the pastor's perspective and then maybe the handful of theologians or other pastors that the pastor likes and uses in his sermon illustrations, that's a that's a profoundly uncurious place to be, where it's it's not it's not really about possibilities. It's about we know what's up. Basically fundamentalism. We know what to do, and our job is to do it. And those are the least open to questions and disagreements of any type of culture, and they're the least curious.
1: Yeah, and I think what I would say is that um that for, for some people, the kind of things that we're talking about now is actually quite uncomfortable because right. for some people, there, there is a want to have things that are very set and stable and um, consistent. And it's very difficult to start to ask questions about things. You know, so for, even for me, it's been an uncomfortable journey to think, why do we do that? Why do we have that tradition? Why do we do things? And and it's not, and I I would want to get this across, it's not a disrespect for tradition or a disrespect for what's gone before. I'm really grateful for what's gone before in many ways. But it is about being able to think to the future, what the future might look like. Because actually, if we're honest, a lot of our traditions that we have – if we look at our church growth, it's not growing uh, in many areas. And so we do need to reimagine what this looks like. But there's also an excitement to that about, you know, what can we do really well and what kind of community do we want to be? How can we imagine ourselves in the future? And that, for me, is an exciting question. And I think I was just going to, touch on this spectrum that we've been using in in training recently which starts so if you can imagine a sort of a line and and at one end of the line is healthy behavior so really healthy helpful behavior and one of the the kind of exercises we do with the healthy church stuff is getting people to recognize what's healthy but what they've already got and celebrating like you said you've already really quickly been able to bring to mind an example of something that was really positive and so we start to share the stories, which is actually what our tradition is of sharing stories of of what's been good. But also allowing people that opportunity even then to say, well, that might have been good for you, but it wasn't so great for me. Um, But actually starting to, to kind of look at what are our hallmarks as a culture, and what what's really good about what we do? As you move along that spectrum, you might get to what might be termed, or I term, currently unhelpful behaviour. So where we don't get it quite right, where it's not particularly helpful, but it's not really harmful, and it's not abusive. It's just where we've got it wrong, and those are the instances yeah,
0: where it's good. very
1: easy for us to kind of reflect and go, actually, I could have done that better. I, I need to go and have a conversation, and even even in the co- having the conversation you begin to change the culture that you're part of because it's okay to say i got it wrong and i i didn't get that right as you move along that that line you might get into a more consistent pattern of behavior. And so things start to become what I would term unhealthy. And that might be where you start to th- check yourself before you speak to a certain person or before you raise an issue, because you're worried mm. about the response that you're going to get. You might write and rewrite your email several times. You might Because be- you're
0: worried about how they're going to respond to it. Oh gosh, that, that brings up all kinds of flags around, not just, not just church relationships but like parents and old, you know loved ones and people walking on eggshells and all that kind of stuff and yeah. i think
1: that sort of and then if in the work that we've done if you you have a persistent pattern of coercive controlling behavior it can cross that line into spiritual abuse where it becomes a persistent pattern of um, coercion and control and and resonates with, with other forms of psychological and emotional abuse. And so I think that yeah. spectrum is helpful to people for a number of things. One is it helps us to reflect on our own behaviour. And I would say for me, the hallmark of healthy ministry is that there is an ability to self-reflect. I think where I get involved sometimes in cases where people have information put to them they may not be aware of their impact of their behavior on other people but when it is put to them they are able to self-reflect and to think that they can see how things have gone wrong it's more worrying where people are unable to do that or unwilling to accept that and I think it's something for all of us that as members of this what we want to now create is a healthy uh, culture we are self-reflective about how we've interacted with each other, and and that that is not a a negative, a defeative thing where we're constantly telling ourselves we got it wrong, but we're honest when we do get it wrong. And we start to create a culture where it's all right to say that I got that wrong and to apologise before behaviour moves up that line to become entrenched and much more difficult to to, um, address. One of the sort of most helpful things I heard really on in early on in thinking about healthy cultures we actually had a seminar at a church by the London Institute Contemporary Christianity and they gave an example of somebody in the church who's quite uh, brusque with a newcomer and people say oh don't worry that's just what such and such a body is like and they asked the question are we here to tolerate people or transform them and I thought it was a really interesting question. So it's, mm. it's about creating this healthy culture. And alongside that then comes a review of leadership. But in a positive way, we, I think we expect an awful lot of our leaders. We expect them to be all things to all people. Um, we're not very forgiving when uh, they, they make mistakes. We, some cultures don't want leaders to be vulnerable Um, or to show vulnerability, but nobody has all the answers and all the gifts all the time. And so I think there's something about how we look to the future in terms of leadership and how we better train equip and support leaders not just our pastors but leaders at every level of the church so we might recognize that somebody's really good at working with children and we put them in charge of the children's work but we've never equipped them to deal with confrontation or criticism or how to run a team properly which we would do in a workplace so how do we better support the people who are working within our cultures? And how do we, you know, respect them and value them and nurture them for the people that they are? And I think all of those things for me are all part and parcel of this journey of healthy culture.
0: So healthy cultures basically are the antidote to spiritual abuse then?
1: I think they are definitely part of the part of this story. I think that I would have a you know, a slight disquiet in myself to say, if we create healthy cultures, we'll never have spiritual abuse. I I don't think we can say that. I think we can say that we start, we would definitely start to see behaviours differently. And therefore, we might address them at an earlier point. I think we would also be more likely to challenge and recognise behaviours that are not helpful.
0: But you're talking about, you know, are we here to basically, I don't remember your exact language, tolerate people or or change them, challenge them. It seems to me that there is a real market element that challenges that's a challenge for that approach because there are so many churches that someone can go to. Now, we might if someone's just like kind of an asshole, then they probably won't find a church that likes them for just for being an asshole and And maybe they don't have an option to just go somewhere else. And maybe their option is leaving the church, which would be good for them to then have to think about whether they want to be an asshole anymore. By the way, swearing is okay on this podcast. But we don't say the C word over here in America the way that you Brits just toss it around in your television shows. Okay, not you. But so someone who is inflexible and dogmatic about it and can give you chapter and verse for why they're an asshole uh, because they think they're doing the Lord's will. Well, they will easily find a church whose culture and theological system thinks that they're actually the paragon of Christian virtue by holding firm to the whatever, however they phrase it, and they'll just go somewhere else. You know, and sometimes those members are high energy. They do a lot of volunteering. They get a lot of stuff done. They're very, they're like a huge resource in like the, frankly, in the in the market sense of it in the, in the monetary sense. in And so it's like, yeah, you can be, you can challenge them, but then there will always be these churches that will reward them and that will think they're rewarding them because God rewards them. And it's almost like, are you, are you creating further radicalized groups by making less radicalized groups more healthy? You know what I'm saying? Like there's a real, there's a real large scale problem here in terms of people self-sorting in, in a society where we don't have a state church, where people aren't all Catholic or something like that?
1: I think that's a really interesting question. I'm kind of thinking that's a really interesting question to answer. I think for me, though, the, the kind of what I throw back to that would be, I think for me, we can't be in a situation where we are saying, it's okay to treat people like this because we don't want you to leave and go somewhere else and cause a oh, problem. Sure. I think what our responsibility is is to work together as community. You're not always going to get that right. I also think it's about how we challenge people. I think that really, mm-hmm. really matters because if you challenge aggressively and uh, defend, and then people are naturally in defence mode straight away. I think where you're invited to a conversation, that's a different ball game, and I think it's much harder actually in those calm conversations to be as defensive and so i think it but again that's about respecting people you know if i i work at university if i have to speak to a student i want to speak to them respectfully if i'm part of my family i want to treat people with respect even if i don't agree with everything that's being done and so right. for me it is about that and it's also about creating a community that reflects the values that that it's built upon Yeah, and so I I think I think there are issues with it, and I agree with you that um, you know that that's why I say it's it's not it's not the golden ticket to everything being okay, but I think it is a real moment for us to think about. Okay, we're starting to recognise. So when I started this work, really. I mean, even today, I'd be honest and say I'm not sure exactly where it is in the States at the moment. I think it's probably more acceptable terms for its abuse in the States. I think it's becoming more accepted in the UK, but it's still contested to some extent, not necessarily the behaviours, but the terminology. But I think we've been on a journey with that and we continue to be. On a journey with that
0: I'm sorry, what's what's uh, perhaps contested?
1: The term so using the term spiritual abuse I think yeah. for, in some uh, context is uh, controversial.
0: yeah I've, I've been kicking that around. I, I'm kicking around actually going with the term uh, spiritual harm to, to kind of defang it a bit, N- not for, you know which is you you lose something for the survivors they feel if you defang it but you might gain something for who that needs to listen to it would listen to it. And that's a difficult balance.
1: It is. I think for me, I mean, it's interesting because when we wrote the book escaping the maze on spiritual abuse, creating healthy Christian cultures, we, we had a discussion with the publisher about whether we should call it creating healthy Christian cultures, escaping the maze of spiritual abuse. And we didn't do that. And we didn't do it because for me, there's still not enough understanding of what people experience i think the other thing is i mean i'm not wedded and i've said this many times but i'm not wedded to the terminology spiritual abuse i think if there's a different term that's better and describes the what we're talking about better why wouldn't we use it and definitions of key terms do change over time however I think in talking to people who've had these experiences many people would say this was abuse and it's it's totally it's to to make it palatable to people not to use the term is is possibly not the right way to go and I think for me that's where again that spectrum is helpful for people to say is this Love unhealthy that. behavior or does it actually cross a threshold to the point that it is psychologically and emotionally abusive and if it does with a spiritual rationale or within a spiritual context then is it not right and proper that it should be recognized as that and I think for me that's where I am at the moment and um, I think I've been on a journey with this I'm sure you know that I You know, in my PhD, I said it should be a separate category. I've been on a journey saying, no, I think it's part of psychological and emotional abuse. But I think the spiritual elements and aspects of it are really important to understand. So it can't just be, for me, subsumed and we say, well, we already know about psychological and emotional abuse. We don't need to know about this. That isn't what, however many years now, 14 years of working in this area. Is it longer than that? I can't remember. I can't do my maths, but yeah, Yeah. it's a lot of years. Has has taught me is that we really need to understand this and we really need to listen to the stories of people who have been harmed and that we need to understand the spiritual aspects of it. So where things are done seemingly in God's name or even with God as complicit, where biblical passages are used often out of context, And where there is pressure put on, where disagreement isn't just disagreement with that person, it's akin to disagreement with God, Um, God, where there's threats of spiritual consequences that people live with for a long time and often wonder for a long time what is going to happen to them. I think those are serious things that need to be talked about and understood. And so for me it's about exploring those those parts of the experience, acknowledging them and acknowledging the harm that's done. I think it's also important because of the work around intervention and support that those aspects of the experience are understood because they are significant. You know.
0: Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to treat people with PTSD, unless you understand, uh, unless you can understand what severe PTSD looks like, right? You don't, you don't want to go in sort of half cocked when some people who have experienced spiritual abuse are thoroughly shattered by it because it can be so, so damaging. And that's where you, yeah, you do need to call a spade a spade to be able to help work Toward healing.
1: Yeah, and I think that really came out in the 2017 research we did. We had a section of the research where we asked people who identified as having had the experience to complete just those sections. Not, not just those, but they were the only people that we asked to complete those yeah. sections. And, and part of that was about what does a good response uh, to a disclosure of spiritual abuse look like? And part of it was about what training is needed, what what further work is needed. And what was really clear when people were saying, what does a good response look like? was about not minimizing not denying that it yeah. would happen, not seeing it as less than other forms of abuse and the things that came up quite a lot were about not defending the church not, not that not being the first response and right. and also you know passages like Matthew 18 were used quite frequently while you've got a problem with your brother take it to your brother And actually, we wouldn't say that in any other case of abuse. And one of the participants, I remember very clearly, the quote was, don't organise a meeting as though this is a meeting of equals, because it absolutely isn't. And I think understanding for me, I suppose some of the pain of the work has been in, in, you know, looking and listening to people's stories and listening to what people are living with for many years, And some of that is related to, you know, using the Bible, prayer uh, that's perhaps been manipulated, spiritual consequences, not being able to challenge because somebody's seen to have a divine position and therefore has been put there by God and shouldn't be challenged. And I think where we don't start to explore some of that, we don't give people then the space in support and intervention to be able to explore those issues themselves. Um, And I think they're hugely, you know, powerful. And so when we come to responding, if our response is, shall I pray for you or shall I read the Bible with you, which was quite clearly in the survey, things that people were saying, be really careful, because actually if that's been used in a way that is unhealthy or abusive, That will be really, really distressing for somebody. And if you've been very controlled, you're sure that the answer to the question, can I pray with you, is yes. So you're not going to probably feel able to say say no. no. Yeah. Um, So we need to be really careful about how we approach some of this. And that, for me, is why we need to understand it better. And, And then... For me, these two things go together. So we understand what spiritual abuse is. We start to understand how it might occur. We start to understand all the characteristics of this experience. And at the same time, we devote time to creating healthy cultures which recognise all the factors that we've talked about and in which spiritual abuse is less likely to occur and more likely to be identified. And those two, for me, go together very, very clearly.
0: I love that. It's a, it's a fantastic sort of follow-up to getting a better picture of the abuse is to just focus on the opposite of the abuse, basically. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, I'll, I'll give you time to think about it. I'm going to ask if you think that fundamentalist congregations can ever be healthy groups. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Very briefly, if you'd like to support this show financially, if you'd like to be a part of the Facebook group, and if you'd like to receive at least two exclusive episodes per month for patrons only, then please become a patron patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, One of the most recent episodes is me discussing some of the early results from my survey with a buddy of mine who's very interested in this topic as well, and who has just finished his own master's in psychology. So go to patreon.com slash Dan Koch if that's interesting to you. But no big deal if not, just enjoy the show. Back to my conversation with Lisa. Okay, Lisa. So terminology is really important for a question like this. So feel free to define fundamentalist church in in your own words. But the question is, can a fundamentalist church ever be a healthy group in the way that you've described? And I'll, I'll just say a few things, a few of these again. So people are respected, valued, and nurtured. It is okay to ask questions and to disagree. There is some curiosity, if we want to throw in my side of that, it's a place where disclosure can happen because people feel comfortable disclosing things. So, is it possible?
1: Okay, so I'm going to throw a question back to you. Okay, so, <laughs> oh, I haven't the
0: Jesus move. Uh,
1: yeah, I haven't. What I would say is that the research that we've done has looked at across a, a variety of denominations, but we haven't particularly focused on fundamentalism or etc. Within our work, what I would say to you is, what would you what would you define as a fundamentalist church?
0: So off the top of my head, I, and I, I didn't know I was asking this question, so I didn't prepare a definition. <laughs> but something like, for me, fundamentalism has to do with there is a text. This applies beyond Christianity, by the way, but it, in the it's the Bible in the case of Christianity. So there is a text that is perfect, essentially, and nothing from the outside world affects it. So we're not looking to science or any of the sciences or literary criticism or schol- you know, biblical scholarship. We, are not, we don't need any of that stuff. That stuff does not affect our understanding of the Bible. We just read the Bible. We trust that we have a good translation of it. I guess you have to add in. And that is it. Everything is based around that. And our job is to basically defend it, to live it, to obey it, to defend it from outside pressures. We are a soldier in God's army, and that is our job.
1: Okay, so I'm probably going to give you a question, an answer. You don't find that satisfactory, but um, okay. I'm going to give you the honest answer that I've got, which is, A, we've not done a lot of work around fundamentalism, so... Um, I wouldn't be able to say from an evidential basis. I think the other thing I'd say is that a lot of the work we've done has not been particularly around tradition or beliefs. beliefs, So we're not saying this is a spiritually abusive belief, that isn't. I do think it's about how you uh, share the theological positions, because actually, if we're honest, it's not just about fundamentalism across the board in Christianity. And as you've said, in other faiths well beyond, there are lots of different positions that people will take that they will hold to and say, this is the true position to have on whatever topic we're talking about. And they are diametrically opposed to each other, so they can't all be right. right. So I think that I would probably say that I think it is about being able to, the way in which you put across the views that you have and the theological beliefs that you have, how you treat people that disagree with you and how open you are, Not, not necessarily... to to people saying, well, that's wrong, but to saying, can I ask questions about that? And I think for me, the truth always stands up to questions. So there's no need to be scared of it. I think that where you're in a very dogmatic group, I mean, one of the things that I've done some writing about is the difference between where you could have somebody who is very coercive and controlling as an individual, but in an otherwise healthy culture Um, But you can also have a very controlling, coercive culture across the board.
0: Or a really kind pastor in an otherwise controlling culture.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So you could, yeah. Two fundamentalist pastors, one of them is a narcissist and one of them is not. Those are, they might believe exactly the same things about the Bible, but they are going to inflict way different levels of damage on people in their congregation, Right. If one of them has a natural pastor's heart and genuinely is empathetic and and just really doesn't believe that he has any latitude with the text and maybe even is OK with some people leaving that church, going to other churches versus all the same beliefs. But a narcissist who believes that he's speaking directly for God, essentially, because he, under, you know, and, and all the baggage that comes with that.
1: And you could also have that, I would say, it within different traditions and so i'm not sure that it's whether it's about fundamentalism or not um so much and i think that certainly in the in the work that we did we had people from all different denominations that you might uh, classify as conservative as liberal and um, people were talking about their experiences and those the language may have been different and some of the um, characteristics may be slightly different so i'll give you an example you know whether you believe that the holy spirit speaks today or not so that might be a difference in your your view of church or the 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 denomination Mm -hmm. that you belong to so there might be some differences in that. But actually, underneath it, the characteristics that they were talking about in terms of control, coercion, manipulation, exploitation were there. And so for me, I did start off in my PhD saying, well, most of what I was reading, if I'm honest, tended to focus on broadly charismatic churches. And so I kind of started off from that. But as I got more into the research, and certainly the more that I've done people from across church traditions have talked to me about their stories. And so for me, it's about exploring this, this, issue as a whole and looking at the characteristics of as a whole rather than trying to say well it's going to happen here and it's not going to happen here because I actually think what the very first thing I ever wrote was called unsafe in a safe place because it was one of the first conversations I had with somebody who said to me this was a place I should have been the most safe and yet I was the least safe and now I don't know what's safe or who's safe anymore. And I think that for me, that's the, that that there is some danger in looking at personality type or looking at because I looked at that mm. was something that I also had a bit of a look at or denomination. That's not to say there's not value in doing that, and if there are patterns, right. we want to to find them. So a lot of the the work that I do generally is around kind of issues of abuse and safeguarding within faith settings and predominantly my work is in the Christian uh, faith setting but I also chair the National Working Group for Child Abuse Linked or Belief in England and one of the things that we've been looking at there is rather that we want to look at this issue and where we start to say, well, these, this is this person's safe and this person isn't, we might actually make people unsafe in that process. So I think it's about looking at the characteristics and then mapping those onto the different contexts that we see and the different interpersonal relationships that we see. And that's where we get our answers from, I think.
0: Yeah, it's always more complex than we'd like it to be. I just want to say that at the end, I'd like to talk – I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to talk about spiritual abuse of ministers because Mm. that is, at the moment, my next research project. I'm planning on doing a qualitative study and also editing it into a series of episodes for the podcast, but then peer-reviewed research uh, publication with Dr. Swindle as kind of the advisor on it. So, I want to do that, but before we do, you got some bells of mine ringing when you talked about one of the findings of your healthy communities work is that process is more important than the product. That, you know, a church will have a, go through a decision-making process about something, maybe it's what are we going to do about homosexuality or what are we going to do about different kinds of worship services? How many services? What style? They're going to make that decision again in the future, but they can never take back the process by which they made it and if that harmed people. And I have been a part of churches both growing up and the church that – the main church that my wife and I attended here in Seattle that had – each church, I actually would say, had multiple instances of traumatic processes that whether or not the decisions that ultimately made were right or wrong – Bunch of people left because of the way it was done. Some often unilaterally more or less by the head pastor and then presented in language that was supposed to be kind or whatever. But the nitty gritty of it was that like I decided or me and a few other elders or something decided and then people going, "Uh, what the hell? And in, in one of those instances, I can say, because I have background, I, I now know more about what went on between, for instance, the music pastor and the head pastor at our church here in Seattle. The music pastor tried to quit. He, he quit, and then they're like, don't quit yet. And then eventually he, he left. But it wasn't communicated right. And, it, and so if people knew, dude, he was already out the door a year prior. Like, you know, if the process had been different— people would have understood oh there was no way to keep him around he he already wanted to go right so it's a it's a really good example of what you're saying it's not i don't disagree with the decision he was out but a lot of people left by the way it went down not the fact that now maybe some of them would have left anyway cuz they were there for his music but the guy we got to replace him is fin- is fantastic and very similarly skilled you know that wasn't really the issue and so I guess that's just an anecdotal way into asking you to say more about what specifically you've found. Why is it that process is more important than product or decision?
1: I think partly because, as we say, decisions will be changed. And actually, it's not even at the level, you know, it can be decisions as simple as what colour should the next carpet be. You know, it doesn't have to be um, about the next minister or anything like that. But I think it is because the interactions that we have with one another, we remember. And therefore, the hurt that mm. is inflicted uh, lives on. I do think that there can be oh, ways to yeah. address that if if you recognize it and so there is an opportunity to apologize and say actually, the way that we behaved there was." utterly wrong and we shouldn't have done that now I think there's a line with that it depends how far that behavior has gone but I do think that that it can be addressed but I think that that you can't undo the conversations people can't forget the conversations that happened or the way in which people were treated so it really does matter and I think just going back to your example as well I think one of the big things that we're understanding more and more is about how key communication is now that is a key in every organization. And it's probably, you know, from a kind of organizational psychology point of view, one of the biggest challenges for any organization is good communication. Yeah. But I think one of the things that often happens in churches is that there's lots and lots of meetings by leadership teams often, or even potentially by groups within the church. So it might, depending which way it's going to come. So if it's a leadership decision that's going to be given to the church or an idea from the leaders that's going to the church, you will have had lots of meetings. I know because my husband was a leader for 10 years. There have been lots of meetings ahead of presenting something to the church you've been right. on a journey where you've been able to discuss to think to reflect to challenge to question and then you present it to the church but then we want to then move on because we've we've we, we we're want that sick to see of it, it. But actually, Yeah, we've been not, in meetings
0: about it for six months. You know, you're hearing about it now, but we're over it yeah, and we would like to but move on. I
1: wanna be able to do that right. journey. I exactly. want to be able to think about it, to reflect, to come and ask questions, to have and I often that's the bit that I think is is often missing is that we we have all that that discussion. And then we don't allow people the time themselves to think through, to work through, to raise those things that make them feel a bit uncomfortable. So then when we if we push through a decision, we then end up in a p- place where where people will go with it or not, and you know, but that how they feel is different to maybe if you've just given them two or three weeks more. And so there is a question mm. for me often about how quickly we want people to move and how how helpful that is and allowing people that same time to process things and to think about decisions that they're making
0: could i could i hazard an explanation for what makes this a partial explanation for what makes this so difficult so let's say that the question is uh basically gay ordination or will we allow gay weddings will we allow uh gay congregants to serve, you know, some some sort of affirmation question. Let's say you are a medium church. So in the States, let's say you have, I don't know, 200 regular attendees and you've got an bu- annual budget of $3 million or something like that. You have a building with a mortgage. If you say, and let's say that the leadership is genuinely open to like, you know what, we are considering becoming an affirming church and we are going to do a x number of month let's say a 4 month process discernment process as a leadership and congregation at the end of which we will vote and we will have a con- we will have a conversation and we're going to we're going to bring in people you know there will be adult Sunday school classes for those who want them to delve into the text i the pastor will be preaching through these books and looking at these things here's a weekly blog post about what the elders are thinking about Here's the thing about that. I mean, that sounds f***ing great. That's the best thing. That's the coolest way to go about it. And I have heard of churches who have done something like that. But here's the thing. Even in a city like Seattle, where I live, a liberal West Coast city, super cosmopolitan, highly educated... When Eastlake Church, which was one of the big megachurches here, when they did that, they lost 70% of their congregants. They went from five campuses or so down to one. And the, you know they still exist in a different form. It's a much smaller kind of different community now. So how can you go through – you're basically saying we're going to go through a public process about whether or not our company needs to downsize by 50%.
1: Okay. like it's
0: it's such a massive the consequences are so massive. Now I think that I I want churches to do that. I'm for doing that. But I I guess I'm just trying to partially motivate why they don't do that. Uh for instance with something like that. And that might be the that might be the most extreme example because it is the most hot button issue that would have the most consequences and there are probably other ones that are not quite so consequential like a new hire or carpet or how many worship services or music styles or something like that
1: i can see what you're saying but if i throw back a different example to you great if you were having a discussion in your church and you were saying are we going to change our view on whether jesus was born lived and died and rose again if, if that was the discussion you were having and seventy percent of your church chose to leave because they didn't agree with the y- you having that discussion, or they didn't agree. You mm. would say, "Well, it, I just, I just think that we that if the only motivation, or if the primary motivation, is about numbers, I, I struggle with that. I think that, well, that me too,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, and I,
1: I think yeah. that for me, it's, you know, it's the same in every situation, isn't it? You don't always have time. You know, in any in any organisation to put every decision forward for lots and lots and lots of discussion and debate I accept that but I also think that ma- the majority of the time the decisions that are put forward that there is more often than not there is not sufficient time where there could actually be allowed more yeah. time and I think that's the key point I just also think that I'm just going to be honest and say that People matter. People matter more. Also, that um, if if your concern is that we need to keep the numbers, whatever the cost, what or when, what what might the cost be at some point? And I think or just
0: go into the go into business. Don't be a pastor. Absolutely. At that
1: point. And I think for me, <laughs> there are other,
0: there are other fields for you to work in if you want to just make the nut make the margins. And you I know? think
1: you know some of this is about. Some of the things in terms of you know what does a healthy culture look like, we're still we're still talking about this, we're still really thinking about it. It's emerging thinking. We don't have it all as a done deal and this is the way it's got to be. And it's I mean, for me, it would be awful if we started to have a book that this is how it's got to be every time, because actually for me, that's not what a healthy culture looks like. It's it's reactive, it's responsive, it, it emerges and it's different. You know, what looks like a healthy culture for me living in in my little town in the UK is different from what looks like a healthy culture for you. And I think that's a really important thing to do and I think you could if you what we're really looking at is these principles what does it look like to respect people through a process what does it look like to value people what does it look like to be a church that does those things a culture that does those things and then that's about us having some conversations amongst ourselves about that Um, and so I don't think there's a rule book of this is how it's got to happen every time this is what it's got to be but I think that some of those principles are things for which for me the exciting bit of, the, of of moving forward is that we start to move into a culture where we start to ask some of the questions, where it's actually okay to ask some of these questions. You know, why do we do the things we do? Why do we do them in the way that we do? How much of this is tradition and how much of it is, you know, really based in 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 the foundations of faith how much of what we do is for now and 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 all of those questions and they're not threatening questions they're good questions to ask and I think for me you know I I have lots of views on lots of topics I don't say you've got to agree with this view or that spiritual abuse but I do say how we treat people matters And I think that treating people with value, respect and nurturing them and creating cultures in which people can flourish is hugely important. And so the process does matter. Uh, The product often matters, but I do think people live with the process. Um, And then I think my I suppose my final challenge would be we are part of the culture. So it's really easy to sit here for 90 minutes and talk about creating healthy cultures. And wouldn't it be great if we could create healthy cultures, which I firmly believe we can, my hope is that, you know, when I'm 90, sitting in a rocking chair, hopefully maybe with some great grandchildren, I can look back and think that things have changed and that we've understood what spiritual abuse is. And we've done something to respond to it and to prevent it. And we're creating much healthier cultures for the future. And I think that's really important. So we are. And I think one of the things that's really easy for us is to sit back often and to say what is wrong with the culture that we're part of or what we would like to see change. And so as much as I think we do need to be accountable for the cultures that we create, we are also accountable for our own behavior. And so one of my questions that I put to people, there's two things that I put to people often in training that I think I maybe want to leave people with. Yeah, to consider. great, do it. One of the questions is, would I want to be led by me? Hmm. And that's a really good question to ask yourself. Would wow, I want to be led good. by me? And um, and I'll be honest enough, I'm a
0: little afraid to ask
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest enough to say that I asked my two daughters that and one of them said yes and the other said no. Uh, so that's <laughs> interesting. Uh, not about me, yeah. but being led by themselves. It's a really good question. Oh. Actually, mm. I've got three. So the first one is,
0: Okay. Would Would I want to be led by by me? I don't know. if I think my answer might be no on that. Okay, Okay. go on.
1: The second, which I think is often, but it's good to think through why and why not. That's part of the self-reflection process. The second question is, I often ask myself, after people have had a conversation with me, do they leave feeling valued and respected? Mm, Um, That's great. And if the answer to that question is honestly no, do I need to do something about that? Um, And I think that's part. But the third thing is you're part of the culture you're in. So what one thing can you do to start to develop the healthy culture that you want to see in the place that you're in? Now, often when I'm doing training sessions, I'm actually saying to people, tomorrow morning when you're in your church service, what's the one thing you're going to do? What's the conversation you're not going to have or you are going to have that's going to begin to change the culture? Now, we're in a slightly different time. Certainly here we are. Most of our church meetings are via Zoom at the moment, which has also been quite beautiful in some ways. But there's still things that we can do to start to bring about the healthy culture that we want to see. Every conversation is part of the culture that you create. Every response is part of the culture that you have. And so there's an individual responsibility about, if I want to see a healthy culture, what's my role in that? And then what's one thing, because that's a big thing, what's one thing that I can do that can start to bring about some positive change?
0: Those are fantastic. I put those three questions in the show notes as well as uh, a link to your Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse book and a link to the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. We're out of time, so I will uh, be content to email you for any tips on the uh, qualitative research around ministers experiencing spiritual abuse. Yep. Until next time we speak, Lisa, Dr. Oakley, thank you so much. This has been awesome. And I am leaving this conversation so pumped about the healthy communities as the opposite polarity of spiritual abuse. And that is filling stuff out and contextualizing it in an incredible way in my own mind as I continue down uh, this research path. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Our editor is Josh Gilbert. He's available for more work. His email is in the show notes. Head to patreon.com slash Dan if you'd like to become a patron and get access to the Facebook group as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month. And otherwise, we will see you guys next week. are listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.